This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. That's the sound of me prepping the grill with Reynolds Wrap. And the sound of me not doing dishes. And the sound of me spending more time outside with my family. Easy prep, cook, and clean. Make time with Reynolds Wrap. I like the sound of that. It's harder than ever to find clothes that will stand the test of time. But if you're looking for pieces designed to last, you can't go wrong with American Giant. From hoodies and t-shirts to denim and more, they've got everything you need to build a wardrobe that you'll be proud of for years to come. Shop wardrobe essentials that last a lifetime at American-Giant.com and use LT23 to get 20% off your first order. That's 20% off your first order, American-Giant.com, code LT23. What's up, friends? Welcome back to a new episode of the New Evangelicals Podcast. I am your host, Tim Whitaker. It is great to be with you. And if this is your first time listening, thank you. A sincere thank you for listening to this podcast. I recognize that there are quite literally tens of thousands of podcasts that you could be listening to, and you chose this one. I do not take that for granted. On this week's episode, I am bringing you Preston Sprinkle. Now, Preston Sprinkle is a theologian. Um, he wrote, he co-wrote a book a long time ago. Well, is it a long time ago? Yeah, I guess about 10 years ago or longer now, um, called Erasing Hell, which was a response to the book by Rob Bell called Love Wins, which questioned if hell was eternal or not. Now, since Preston co-wrote the book with Francis Chan, he has actually changed his view quite a bit on hell, and I brought him on the podcast to talk about that, what that journey looked like, what he believes hell is now, and what do we do as Christians going forward. So this is a great episode, especially if you're someone who's questioned hell or has questions about hell, or if you have friends who have questions. I recommend sharing with them this episode because it really tries to settle and kind of answer some of those questions for you. That being said, if you can give this show a rating and review, it would mean so much to us. It helps us out so much. And of course, if you want to financially support all the work that we do, we do a lot more than just podcasting. We have the Zoom groups. We do all of our social media content, and we do nothing behind paywalls. There's no bonus episodes. There's no Patreon community. We believe in not withholding help from anyone for financial reasons. So everyone who can donates, and that's how we're able to do the work that we do. So if that's you, if you are willing and able. It would be so appreciated if you donated. We are a registered 501c3 nonprofit in the U.S., which means if you give to us inside of the U.S., it is a tax-deductible donation, and we really appreciate that. Thank you so much. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Mad Priest Coffee. Let me be honest, friends, and transparent right off the bat. I freaking love this company. I've actually met Mike before. He's the owner of Mad Priest Coffee. We got lunch when he was in town randomly one day. I love everything they're doing. It's 
ethically sourced, it's locally owned, it's deliciously tasting, and the branding is freaking great. Friends, you can buy a tote bag that says, I kissed shit coffee goodbye. Come on, we all know what that's riffing off of, and it's freaking brilliant. On top of that, they are currently launching a Get Mad campaign to end Christian nationalism. Wait, Tim, are you telling me that you have found a local coffee brand that is ethically sourced, that treats their employees right, that is trying to end Christian nationalism, that is socially minded and is hilarious in branding? Yes, friends, that's exactly what I'm telling you. And it gets even better. If you go to getmad.coffee and you buy anything on that webpage and in the checkout offer code section, you put in TNE20, you will get 20% off your order. Come on, it gets no better than that. I drink this coffee, I love this coffee, I love what they're doing, it's great, great stuff. So again, that's getmad.coffee, anything on that on that webpage, you purchase it, you put in the offer code checkout section thingamahoozy, TNE20, you get 20% off your order. Go check them out. Thanks, guys, for being a sponsor of the episode and of the podcast. It is awesome. All right, friends, without further ado, here is my interview with Preston Sprinkle. I hope you enjoy it. All right. Well, this is I'm I'm excited for this one. Uh, we have Dr. Preston Sprinkle on the podcast. So, Preston, I, I gotta say, I've been a longtime listener, not only to your own podcast, you know, Theology in the Raw, uh, but I I've, I've followed you for quite a bit. My my first time reading you was actually reading Erasing Hell that you co-wrote mm-hmm. with with um, with Francis Chan. So it's been really a, a dream to get you on. So thanks for making time. I really appreciate it. No, I've been looking forward to it, man. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> for sure. Um, you know, you podcast, so I, I'm assuming that you're probably excited to be in now the the person being asked the question seat, which is always fun. I like yeah. doing that too. You know, it's nice. So why don't you kind of give, just for my audience, um, give us some of the, the background of Preston. Like, how did you grow up and, and how did you get into the field of work that you do now and what do you actually do? Sure. Yeah. I'll, I'll try to be brief. Um, sure. Raised in a, in a Christian home, but didn't really embrace it really fully until I was 19 years old. Um, convert. So I always consider myself kind of more converted or reconverted at 19, fell in love with um, studying the Bible, reading the Bible, just couldn't get enough of it. Uh, went to a, um, a very conservative uh, Christian college where I transferred in as a, as a junior. Um, I couldn't get enough. So studying the Bible, you know, that went on this, another, the same seminary related to the school is master's seminary in college. If people are interested, John MacArthur's uh, oh. school. Um, so yeah, you know, really conservative, uh, just ate up the text. And I would say about halfway through seminary, I started to realize that as I go where the text leads, as I was t- taught to do, it sometimes leads me to different theological conclusions than some of my professors, you know, and, and, and I tried to do that humbly, you know, what am I, I'm a student, they're, they're the professor, you know, and, right. but even still, like, I'm like, I don't know, I just don't see this in the text. I don't see that in the text. And um, this is a little less clear than you're making it out to be. And so I said, you know what, I want to go and study in an environment where you're, where there's no like boundaries, where you have to go with a text lead. So I went over to Aberdeen University in Scotland and did a, a PhD in New Testament and, and, early Judaism and just ate it up, man. It was so much fun because there it's like, you could be a raging fundamentalist. You can be an atheist. It's like, just prove your beliefs from the text. Like don't, Mm. there's no like 
confessional statement you could rely on like okay he landed the right place so this is an a paper it's like no you might have said something true but your paper was crap so you get an f you know um (laughs) so it was that kind of environment which was which was i i I just loved it i mean it was um you know it was probably 25 other students doing phds in new testament probably 24 were american evangelicals from about 23 different denominations you know Mm. it's a wide spectrum everybody's a jesus follower um, but man, all kinds of different beliefs on secondary issues. And that was just, I was like a kid in a candy shop because I was, I had the space to kind of just think through the text without feeling pressured to land on, on a certain view. So, and that's been my MO ever since. I want to go where the text leads. I want to understand what the Bible says. And if it's popular or unpopular, or if it agrees with my tradition or not, I don't, I don't want that to be the controlling factor. So um, that led me into, I, I taught for in a Christian college for a couple of years after that, then a Bible college for five years, a Bible college that Francis Chan founded, and then um, planted an extension campus of the Bible college that didn't work out. And then moved into uh, the non, I, I helped co-found a nonprofit called the center for faith, sexuality, and gender, which helps the church engage issues related to the LGBTQ conversation. So yeah, all along the way, man, I, I love to take hard issues and try to peel back the the presuppositions we all have, the yeah. view we want to hold and say, okay, let's set that aside right. and let's look what does a text actually say? Maybe we'll be angry at what the text actually says and that's then that's up to us to either embrace it, reject it, whatever. I just want to know what did these ancient, you know, mostly Jewish authors say? What did they mean by what they said? And then it's up to us to kind of deal with that, you know? So that's, you know, and obviously we all have biases. I don't do that perfectly, but that's right. been my MO with any, any topic I try to wrestle with. Man, it sounds like you're, you're a big deconstructing Christian. You know, go yeah. the text oh, leads. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> but I yeah, mean, I've, I, I've, yeah, go ahead. I've deconstructed on, on several. <laughs> and I just, I, we talked offline. I, I don't understand all the hubbub around that. I mean, um, <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, well, it is interesting. Yeah, for sure. You know, but I mean, what? How you just summarize things? I would just say yes, yes, exactly. (laughs) Like, I I am not scholarly. I'm not an academic. You know, I have some college under my belt, but I do my 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 best to read widely. You know, to read everyone from. I I read, for example, I read John Piper's book on the coronavirus when it came out, and I also have uh, John Shelby Spong, you know, the Episcopalian priest (laughs) over here to my right. You know, reading his views (laughs) on like you know God as not a being. I'm like, okay, you know, but I try. And be widely read just to, just to understand that you know there's a lot of ways to view these things whether we like it or not right, right, um, right, right. and so I, I'm I'm happy to have you on for for the the topic of hell because hell is one of those things that in the circles that I run you know in, in the community that I'm a part of New Evangelicals we get a lot of DMs on Instagram you know last year mm-hmm. in 2021 we estimate we got about 10,000 DMs uh, we were uh, really conversational we're really plugged into our community and I can't tell you how the fear of burning alive forever and ever is mm. such a rooted uh, foundational belief that so many people are maybe more than ever that we're aware of wrestling through and trying to figure out how does a good God ultimately, if you're a Calvinist, predestine people there, but if, if you're not, you know, how do you end up there and how is that part of God's love? And so I was wondering, maybe if, maybe we can kind of back up. Can you kind of give us like what? What are maybe? I think I believe that there are three major views yeah. of hell throughout Christian tradition. Can you kind of give us? A, I know you did this on your podcast, but give us a brief overview of just sure. those three, three, three different beliefs. 
Yeah, the 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 view that most people are familiar with, familiar with, which I would call the traditional view, is eternal conscious torment (ECT). It sometimes is referred to, and that is what people would expect it to mean. That you know, and when people are raised from the dead, we face judgment. Believers go to uh, well, the new creation, and then um, right. those who have rejected Jesus in this life will go away to hell, which is a place of eternal conscious torment. Most people who hold to the traditional view today would not say, would not believe in like literal flames, literal fire. Um, hmm. That still is very popular, I guess, on a popular level, but I would say yes. most, I've only read maybe one or two conservative Christians who hold to that view, who say, no, these are literal flames. You know, most people see that as an image, but that's beside the point. The point is that there will be miserable conscious torment that people are actually experiencing in their resurrected bodies. They get special bodies to prepare them for that place. Mm. So that's the traditional view um, has been held by most Western Christians since Augustine. So since about the fourth, fifth century, uh, well, yeah, fifth, fifth century for fourth, fifth century AD. Um, another view is uh, referred to as annihilation or, or conditional immortality. Hmm. Sounds like two completely different things, but annihilation is, you know, same thing. People are raised from the dead, face judgment. They go away to hell. There is a real place called hell. Hmm. And that is where they die. Um, meaning, meaning they, 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 um, their life ceases to exist. Their conscious life ceases to exist. Um, annihil- annihilation, the term annihilation, some people who hold this view don't li- love that because it's almost people think like, oh, poof, you're disappear out of existence. And it's like, well, whatever material remains there are is kind of beside the point. It's just that you will cease to live after facing judgment. Um, and, and the language in the Bible, according to the annihilation, is pretty, annihilation view is pretty aggressive too. So this isn't, this isn't like a, it's, it's not a very soft view. It just says that the punishment um, is death. It's not mm. an eternal conscious torment. So that, that's mm. the annihilation view. Um, and then the third view, and, and not that these need to be ranked in, in any kind of chronological order, but um, the third view would be something like what I, w- I would call Christocentric universalism. Yeah. To distinguish it from pluralism, like a pluralistic universalism, a pluralistic universalism would say something like, you know, all roads lead to heaven. Jesus is one way. Buddha is another way. Or whatever. Maybe that's not even the best way of putting it, but, you know, right. all religions will get to the same place. Um, right. That is not a Christian view. A, a Christian version of universalism says that the death of Jesus was so powerful. The blood of Christ was so potent that it has the power to overcome the unbelief of um, every human being. So it's almost like a hyper-Calvinistic view. <laughs> hmm. or, or, or I guess a more or less Calvinistic way of framing it would be like, well, since we all, since we have free will, um, when we go to hell, the people who have rejected Jesus, so it does believe in hell. That's the thing. Universalism does not deny hell. Hmm. It says there is a place of hell. And it would even hold to almost like a conscious torment kind of, perspective. So when you are there, the more Arminian view would say you will repent and receive Jesus eventually at some point, right? Um, the more Calvinistic, or I would say Bardian view um, of Christocentric universalism is that God will in his sovereignty overcome the unbelief of everybody, you know, who is in hell. So um, yeah, all three views. Uh, some people think that the Christocentric universalism is like heresy was ruled out at the beginning. And that's um, not actually true. In fact, right. the 
the main architect of the Nicene Creed, if there ever was a creed to define orthodoxy is the Nicene Creed. The main architect is Gregory of Nyssa, who's a, bla- I mean, he's a full on universalist. Uh, Origen was known for being a universalist. Mm-hmm. Uh, several other figures in the early church who were clearly within the bounds of orthodoxy were um, some form of universalists. Um, the Eastern church. So we, you know, we're Westerners. We have one half of Christianity. Well, the whole Eastern church mm-hmm. creates lots of space for various views on the afterlife, including universalism. So. That is David Bentley Hart, right? Is he kind of the big name in those spaces who wrote a book on universalism? I believe so. I, I hesitate giving opinions on books I haven't read yet, but I'm almost 99% sure that's, yeah, he would be in that that tradition. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, thank you for doing that. And I think it is important to mention, like you said, that that I think oftentimes a critique of people who might hold to a view of annihilation or, you know, or a Christocentric, recon- you know, universal reconciliation is that, oh, you're just saying that hell doesn't exist. It's like, well, I'm not saying that. I, I, yeah. what I'm, I think what a lot of people are asking is what exactly is hell? <laughs> you know, is it only right. in another dimension? Uh, are there realities right. here and now? It can it be both and. Um, so, you know, it's interesting because. My connection is I read, of course, Rob Bell, Love Wins, which, yeah. of course, at the time, I'm reading Paul Washer while also reading Rob Bell. So I'm kind of like both extremes, right? <laughs> wow. Um, I, just one of those guys. Like, I didn't know the waters I was swimming in. So, okay, I read Love Wins. I'm like, huh, I never thought about like hell as as also being a reality here and now. It really yeah. changed how I saw that. And, you know, I, I read the one chapter of the book where he even – he just posits the question, you know, does God get what God wants at the end, right? Yeah. And, of course, you know, the, the evangelical – Thing, machine did what they did and you know farewell rob bell and he's gone and then you and francis write this book called a racing hell i'm like great we'll love to read it and i read it and if i'm if i'm not mistaken it's been a little while your yeah. conclusion ultimately at the time came away with although there are other ways to view these perspectives we tend to think that that the most maybe quote-unquote biblical perspective is still ect if i'm not mistaken that was kind of where you tended to land yeah. at the time is that correct L- yes but let me i want to give a little bit of nuance because some people when they hear me give my current view. Um, they say, oh, so you deny the book you wrote or whatever. I'm like, well, mm-hmm. two pages of the 160 page book were really <laughs> devoted to annihilation versus ECT. Mm-hmm. The main question we were asking was, is there a, a place referred to as hell that is some kind of irreversible punishment after judgment? Irreversible punishment after judgment. We weren't even really concerned with the temporal or the or the specific nature of that punishment whether it's mm. annihilation or ect it was is is there a place because i mean you know bell and and bell's a great i mean he's a he's a brilliant art, brilliant thinker he's an artist he yeah. is he's great at asking questions there's so much i appreciate about bell's bell's voice people think i'm like anti-rob bell i'm like dude i love that book there's mm. sections i disagree with um obviously but I, I mean, he's, he's, he always is provocative and engaging. So, yeah. And I appreciate that. Um, uh, but we, I do think when we looked at his way of framing hell is like, you know, even says like, is there a hell? Yes. Look at there's abuse everywhere. There's genocide and stuff. I'm like, Hey, I, I think those things are horrible. Is that what the Greek word Gehenna means when the biblical authors wrote that? No, I think so. Um, and I was open to, to that. Can we say those things are kind of hellish? hell-like? Well, I, I guess, yeah, it depends on what we mean by that. But when we look at the text that use the Greek word Gehenna that's translated hell, it's, that's I don't think that they're talking about um, abuse and, and, and genocides and everything. So um, 
so that was our main conclusion was there is a place called hell that the Bible refers to as hell. That's some kind of irreversible place of punishment for those who reject Jesus. We did open up the question, ECT versus annihilation. And that's when, and, and to, to show my cards in my study on that question, I just assumed annihilation was heresy. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when John, I heard in seminary, John Stott was an annihilationist. And I've never, I, I distinctively remember waking up saying, huh. I really thought he was a Christian. And then I went into the, <laughs> then I went into the whole, like once saved, always saved. I'm like, so does this mean he lost his salvation? Like, well, I don't believe that. And so he must not have been a Christian the whole time. And I said, that's not, so really it, it was, it was so weird. It actually challenged my once saved, always saved things. I'm like, mm. how in the world was he not a Christian? But I, my assumption was, if you believe in annihilation, you can't be a Christian. Right. <laughs> which is a view some people still assume, which is just not, biblical self but um uh so so i was so but when i take on any kind of um book or an idea or whatever i always want to hold it with an open hand so i said sure. all right i'm going to look at an ect versus annihilation what's the what are the biblical arguments for annihilation and i remember being pretty blown away i'm like oh my gosh there's a lot more here than i realized mm. and so i remember talking with francis we went back and forth and I told him, "Hey, look! What? Look at this text. Look at that text. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that?" He's like, "Oh, wow! This is this is a lot. This is more complicated than we thought." Mm. But then we said, "Okay." But then there's this text, this text, this text, this text that supports ECT. You know what? It would probably take a lot more time trying to unravel that debate. That's not really our main question. So we spent right. two pages discussing it, and saying we lean toward. I think we even used the language. I think I might have said "lean towards," and I think he said, "Let's put heavily lean towards." And I said, all right, um, <laughs> towards ECT. Right. So after the book, that's when I kind of said, okay, I, now I have space. I, I really want to dig deeper into the ECT versus annihilation because I was just caught off guard that there were a lot of texts that seemed to support annihilation. So really quick, let's talk about, you know, you mentioned Gehenna, the Greek word, um, you know, and this is kind of something that I've thought about, you know, and, uh, and I'm going to say some things that I am saying, please correct me when you, when you hear something sure, say, yeah. actually, I'm not sure if that's <laughs> accurate or not, but I, I was, I've been under the impression that Gehenna is a, a literally a physical place. Like it, it existed somewhere. You know, I think at the time Rob talks about it as like the garbage dump, but I've heard other people yeah. say, well, it's not really just like that. You know, there's more going on there. I've heard it even, even, even said that, you know, at that time, uh, child sacrifice happened in, in the history of, of, of the, you know, of that location. So is, are you saying that, 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 that Gehenna, which is what, what the word, that, that's what Jesus says, translates into hell. Yeah. Um, is that not a physical place then that, that, that he's talking about? Physical is hard. You know, what does that mean? And when we're talking about so, so the, the word is derived from Jeremiah, uh, 720, I got it written down 722, uh, seven, Jeremiah 732 to 33. Um, the days are coming when it will no more be called Topheth or the Valley of the son of Hinnom, but the Valley of slaughter for they will bury in Topheth because there's no room in the dead body. Anyway, it's just like real life, earthly place of judgment where God's going to come and, judge those who in, in this context it's rebellious israelites um who who disobeyed god offering child sacrifice and everything so the va the valley of hinnom is a real valley outside of jerusalem and according to this prophecy that's where god's going to come and judge um disobedient israelites now that's jeremiah through like early judaism so in, in the po kind of post old testament period this um 
early Jews kind of took up on this image and started to interpret it as a more afterlife kind of punishment. Was it a physical place? Was it a spiritual place? You know, it's hard to tell sometimes what do we even mean when we talk about physicality in a post-resurrected judgment place, but they did almost unanimously interpret this as something that's going to happen in the afterlife when God returns. It wasn't just going to be like God sending the Assyrians to punish the Israelites in the actual valley of, of Jerusalem. So by the time the New Testament comes along, which is a Jewish document, um, mm-hmm. it, it basically just kind of adopts this early Jewish view of how they how the early Jews understood this um, reference in Jeremiah 7. Hmm. And, and I wouldn't say that's that's not really that disputed among scholars. I'm trying to think everything's disputed among scholars, but that, that's, that's weird. Like if I said that out loud in a room full of a diverse group of, you know, biblical scholars that people, but yeah, that's, that's pretty clear in, in the text. Yeah. Mm, okay. So, so what was your journey then from, you know, kind of going from this maybe heavily or just light, you know, <laughs> leaning ECT to eventually saying, you know, I think, I think annihilationism is like, is more, what the text is pointing towards as right. a whole, you know, what was that journey like for you? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And and again, I, you know, for me, um, I, and you know, I've, 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 I've changed my views on things. I've deconstructed, I've revisited different things and reconstructed and sure. Been all over the map. Um, yeah. The, the authority of scripture has still always been at the center of my journey. So for mm. me, the main question is, what does the Greek old te- or Hebrew Old Testament and Greek New Testament? What does the Bible actually say about this? I didn't want emotions to drive um, uh, my view, and I don't mm. think sometimes we pit emotions against our reason. And I, I don't want to put it too harsh of a distinction there. Sometimes our emotions come from our reflection on who Jesus is, but sure. I, I didn't want sentimentality. Maybe is a better way of fr- framing it um, to drive my view. I said, look. If the Bible says ECT, then I will embrace it. Does it make sense to me? No. Do I like it? No. If it were up to me, I would, my view of the after, if I were God, you know, yeah, right, right, right. Universalism, right. I'd, make, I'd be a pluralist universally, you know, like, right. <laughs> if it were just like what I want, I don't like to see people die, even my enemy, you know, maybe burn them a little bit, a bit and then all right, we're good, you know, right, right. Um, so I, I, I don't, um, it, it didn't make sense. ECT didn't make sense to me, but I still was like, if the, if the Bible does teach this, if that's what God has revealed, how he's going to do it, then it's up to me to say, either embrace that and just, I don't love it, but this is what you said, or reject it. And then say, this is an aspect of Christianity I don't agree with, or just reject Christianity, whatever I need to do. I need to deal with that. But by dealing with it is not to make the Bible say something it doesn't say. So Right. That was my posture. And yeah, I, when I revisited text after text after text that spoke of some sort of punishment in the afterlife, over and over and over, I just saw these texts that seemed to point pretty clearly to uh, Annihilation versus ECT. Um, a couple couple that stand out. Um, yeah. Well, here's the, and this is where you, st- this will cause some deconstruction here. Okay. <laughs> okay? I'm ready. Okay. John three friggin' 16. Mm. For God to love the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not 
burn forever in a conscious state of torment, but have eternal life. Right. <laughs> Is that what it's, it says? Right. This will not perish. Right. And I, there was an annihilationist writer who kind of pointed that out and did a word study on the Greek word apolumi and, you know, whatever. But I'm like, I remember sitting there thinking, perish certainly sounds like there's a cessation of life. Right. And yet I have never thought of the possibility that it could mean the cessation of life, <laughs> even though like, like I can't even notice the word. I, I've quoted it a gazillion times. Everybody has, and, and people have quoted at me, whatever. And I, I, no one has ever says, I wonder if perish doesn't mean eternal conscious torment because the word perish, maybe it's a bad English translation. Maybe we need to do some work, but at first glance, perish should at least raise questions in every Christian's mind. Like, wow, that doesn't sound like ECT. And the fact that I never even thought about that made me admit, man, I must've had fogged up lenses. I'm reading the Bible through a traditional view that's caused me to not even ask really basic questions about a word that's just glaring at me here. Um, another one, you know, the wages of sin is death. Right. But the free gift of God is eternal life. Never even thought, what if death means death? <laughs> I know. <laughs> right. Right. If I said, you know, uh, my friend died, people would naturally mean, well, his life ceased. Like right. whatever was living is no longer living. And here in this is, you know, eternal life is an afterlife category, which assumes that the death here is an afterlife category. And I know there's some ECT people where, yeah, but death actually means separation from God. And that means an eternal conscious torment. Like, yeah, that's the, what the view says. But right. if you were just read, if you're on a desert island reading this for the first time, right? wouldn't you naturally assume at first glance, at least, that death means death? death cessation of life that's what the maybe it's a bad translation again maybe there's another theological thing we need to wrestle with but at first glance the fact that i never even wondered what if death means death it was like man these lenses are fogged up do not fear those who kill the body but who are not able to kill the soul rather fear him who is able to destroy mm. that's apolumi the same word in group uh, john 316 destroy both soul and body in hell Mm. Um, that again, does destroy here. Clearly the word destroy is parallel with kill. What does kill mean? It means to end somebody's life. And here it's talking again, it's using the image of kill in an afterlife category, paralleling it with destroy. And it seems to clearly speak of annihilation. So I'm, I'm looking at these texts and then I start looking at other texts, other texts. And I mean, I think I counted 80 passages at one point that have these similar kind of face value, at least connotation. And the fact that I never even noticed this was eerie. I was like, wow, this mm. is a study in evangelical psycho psychology. Like, yeah, what? right. right. <laughs> you know, like right. <laughs> you just trained to interpret things that seem to go against the grain of what the text is actually saying. So anyway, that, that led me into a long journey of actually looking at, okay, what does the word mean? What's the Greek word? Let's do a word study. Are there other possible meanings? Let's look at. So in the last six, seven years since writing that book, I have now, well, let me say this. This will be provocative. It'll be fun. Um, I find the annihilation view of hell to be one of the clearest, most pervasively taught doctrines in scripture. Mm. <laughs> interesting. Well, it's interesting because um, 
I think that your comment about a lesson in evangelical psychology is really spot on. And I think a lot of people, um, myself included, right? You're just kind of taught that this is what the Bible says. The Bible is clear. And here's, here's the verses we use to support such claims. And then you either read it for yourself or you're exposed to other people who are academics who have spent their life learning about the Bible and you, and they go, well, you know, maybe this, and you're like, Oh, I, I, I like you, I've never thought about John three sixteen. you know? Oh yeah. Whoever doesn't believe in him will not perish, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. Oh wait, not burn alive forever. Right. Or whatever right. it is. Right. Or same thing, wages of sin is death. And so I do find that an interesting comment because I think a lot of people um, are realizing more and more that, and this is a, a tad bit off topic, but a lot of a lot of people that um, maybe have taught me, or people that I, I call them evangelical gatekeepers, you know, they 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 use the <laughs> language of we're just being biblical, we're just saying this is what the yeah. Bible says, we're just standing on the biblical authority of Scripture. But I think in reality, if they were honest, they would just be saying, well, we have it, we have an interpretation lens, we all do. I'm not saying anyone's above that, myself included. But just admit that you're also interpreting the Bible yeah, in a specific yeah. way, you know, instead of trying yeah. to make it seem like like this way is just crazy town, uh, right. and your way is just standing on what every Christian throughout human history has ever thought. Um, right. So I, I do find that that point uh, in a good way provocative because it should make us reconsider, right? Um, not not necessarily to even throw out. Maybe there is some good stuff that evangelicalism has taught us, right? But at least yeah. be a little more skeptical of just swallowing the, 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 the whole mantra, hook, line, and sinker, saying, well, if they say this is what the Bible says, it's just clear. Yeah. And that's what I, when I, you know, so I started reading people that were... Um, you know, articulating an annihilation, annihilationist perspective, looking at their, you know, their, their evidence. I always look past, you know, here's what they say. Okay. Well, why do you say that? Looking at their evidence, cross-checking words. They say this word means this, and this passage, that passage. So I'm looking at passages, looking at passages. And then here's what really drove me further toward annihilation is I looked at the evangelical, not even because annihilationists are even, many of them are evangelical. I looked at the ECT critiques of annihilation, almost hoping to be pulled back because mm. when, you, when you take a, view that a lot of Christians think are heresy, it creates more emails, right? And I don't, I don't <laughs> look for that. Right. Um, so I'm like, yeah, it'd be easier if I just went with an, you know, swallowed the pill and embrace ECT. So I'm like eagerly going to read, like, uh, you know, somebody said, oh, read Don Carson, DA Carson's critique mm. of annihilation. It destroys it. So I'm like, oh, good, good. Okay. Right. Cause it's starting to sound kind of convincing, you know, right. Right. Going, I read the section and I'm looking at me saying, look, DA Carson is one of the most brilliant New Testament scholars I've ever read. And I just found his counter argument to annihilation so utterly embarrassing. I shouldn't say embarrassing for me. <laughs> yeah, okay. I just found him very uncompelling, was mm. not really addressing mm. the issues, was not providing better evidence. Um, Al Moore debated Chris Date at the time. Chris Date, an annihilationist, was a computer programmer with no theological higher education. He's in, in the process now. And Al Moore is Al Moore, right? And yeah, they right. debated this topic. And in my opinion, people can disagree. Chris <laughs> Date kind of ran exegetical circles around Al Moore, Al, mm. Al Moeller, mm. bringing up, well, what about this text and this word and this, this? And Al Moeller seemed to, I think he was tripped up because he didn't know what he was getting into. Right, right. But it just, he just seemed like, yeah, but church history and this and that. But yeah, but then just he's more strong, language, like relied upon his rhetoric to kind of, spout kind of not spout i'm trying i really want to as, as if al is listening probably not but um, probably it not. just it didn't it felt like he was just holding on to this traditional view at all costs while chris was just bringing up exegetical point after exegetical point 
and actually talking about the actual meaning of these Greek words in context. And I was like, wow. So where is the really solid defense of ECT against annihilation? I just, the more I read these critiques of annihilation, the more I was like, wow, well, that just pushed me farther toward annihilation. So for you, why are you not, um, why is the, um, we'll just say universal reconciliation perspective. Why is that not compelling it for you at this point? That's a better phrase. I should have said that. Uh, ultimate reconciliation is 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 probably the most precise phrase. That, that God will reconcile all things through Christ. Um, I mean, that, that's, that's what it comes Christ, down through to. Christ. Right. Through Christ, Christ is. Yeah. You're right. Like, like we yeah. said earlier, it's not pluralistic. Where you know, in this case, it's, it's a bad example. But you know, Buddha the, the, isn't the reconciler here. It's Jesus right. ultimately. But all right. those paths eventually lead to Jesus. Is kind of the right, idea. Right. Yeah. Well, to be clear, I find that view. Um, a lot more biblically compelling than ECT. For me, I would rank it annihilation, <laughs> okay. um, Christocentric universalism, like a Bardian form, yeah. and then ECT. Um, wow. The strongest argument of ECT is obviously you have the weight of tradition, but that's fairly easily explained when you go back to Augustine, who had a Neoplatonic view of human nature, where he had this kind of dualistic view of body and soul, a kind of dualistic view. I've been reading more recently, and it's it's a little more nuanced than that. But he he kind of came at the question with the presupposition that the human soul is intrinsically immortal. So right. So annihilation wasn't an, uh, presuppositionally it wasn't an option because we know that the human soul is immortal. It can't be destroyed. So where is it going to live forever? At well, it's like well that that first of all, I don't find the. Op- a Platonic, Neoplatonic view of the human nature, very biblical. Um, and, and Augustine's smarter than I'll ever be, so I don't want to make him sound stupid. But I mean, he did come at this question with a lot of presuppositions. And we all, most of us know, I mean, Augustine, his views held a huge sway, huge sway on the rest of Western Christianity up through totally the Reformation. I mean, just war theory. The reason right. why the church isn't all pacifists, like they all, almost all of them were before Augustine, was because of Augustine mm. <laughs> and because of, you know, um, anyway, that's all, that, neither here nor there. But um, so I'm like, oh, we can kind of explain why mm. so many Christians since then have been just thinking in the wake of Augustine. So the the way to tradition normally, I think, does what well, it does hold some credibility, but it's like, uh, I don't know. That, that just isn't super compelling. So, yeah, I, I think uh, Christocentric universalism has several texts and themes in its favor. Um, Romans 5, I think it's 518, in Christ, or no, in Adam all died, Mm -hmm. so also in Christ all will be made alive. Now, I learned from John MacArthur that to interpret a a verse, you know, when there's parallelism is the parallels typically reflect each other. So if we ask the question, Mm -hmm. in Christ all died, who is all? If you say all humanity, then it's on you to say in Christ all will be made alive. That the same Greek word pantos does not it means something different in this half of the verse compared to that half of the verse. Um, you have uh, the Book of Revelation. People think is supporting ECT, and there's two passages. Probably the most probably the most significant passage for ECT is is Revelation fourteen nine to eleven. Yeah, um, and then Revelation twenty can be brought in as well. But uh, there, there's if you look if you look at some of the themes in Book of Revelation, there's some strong support for universalism, ultimate reconciliation. And Robin Perry has has um, Robin Perry's written some of the most compelling work on this um, Colossians. 
Colossians 1, uh, Philippians 2, um, 1 Corinthians 15 are passages that, that in and of themselves, in and of themselves, could they, they, they tap in some themes that could be taken as support for ultimate reconciliation and the character of God. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's some, you know, you can make an argument, a theological argument there. I think Bart goes back to the Noahic covenant, does some Bartian stuff there. I mean, he's, he's hard to understand for me at least, but um, so, yeah, so I think there are arguments to be wrestled with for me, people say, all right, why don't you on that, on that side? Honestly, I, I still think the exegetical case for annihilation I would say far, far exceeds signet is much more superior mm. if you add it all up and just logically annihilation rules out Christocentric, any kind of universalism. Right. Right. ECT opens a door for it. Really? I mean, people say you're on a slippery slope. I'm like, no, if you believe in ECT, the burden of proof rests on you to say, God's not going to accept the repentance of somebody who's been in hell for a billion years. Right, right. No, he's going to prevent them from repenting. Right. So so the God you worship is actively preventing people from repenting who want to repent. Okay, that that's on you to unpack that as a theological, <laughs> as the character right. of God. So right. ECT, to me, how many billions of years does the 15-year-old daughter born into a Muslim f- family in Yemen have to suffer? Right. Before God's like, all right, 10 billion years, your payments done. I mean, I'm being, but that's, that's but the view. That's, I'm just articulating I mean, that, the view. That is real. That's realistic. That's, that's, that's eternity, right? Uh, Deal with it. it. If you believe in ECT, that's, 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 that's your view. And again, if God said it, then I believe it. And I'm like, I'll let him work out the details. I'm not God. I'm not, I didn't create this system. So, um, but I, EC or annihilation just says, no, when someone faces judgment for not following Jesus, however you want to frame it. Yeah. Their life ceases. That's their punishment is they don't, they get death, which is built into creation. It's why God had to kick Adam and Eve out of the garden, because if they stayed in the garden, they would have had access to the tree of life and then they would have lived forever. They weren't created right. intrinsically immortal, right. which is why people like the term conditional immortality. Our immortality, our living foreverness is contingent upon faith in the resurrected Jesus. Am I well, getting that, off? T- I'm, I'm, I feel no. like I'm talking too much. No, so that's, I, this is how, <laughs> this is what I wanted. Okay. People listen to me talk on social media all the time. So this podcast is not for me to, to rant about. Um, but it- Mother's day is coming. And if you don't get mom, the perfect gift, she won't be angry, just disappointed. So go with drinks from Drizzly, the go-to app for alcohol delivery, send favorites near bar or to wherever the moms in your life are. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com and get the best drinks to the best moms and plenty of time for Mother's Day. Ding dong, it's Drizzly. Must be 21 plus. Not available in all locations. If someone you love is struggling with their mental health, you don't have to struggle alone. Call or text 988 to get resources and support from trained crisis counselors who can help you help them. 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Hope has a new number. It's interesting because, you know, I remember listening to the Bible Project a couple, maybe last year sometime, they were going over something to do with, with the Garden of Eden, and they mentioned how, you know, yeah, like, humans were born immortal. Like, like the gift is is to be able to, it's like this tree figure, you know, like your or analogy, you're able to participate in this tree of life and, and live forever that way. And that was very yeah. much for me a mind-blowing moment of, like, Oh, yeah. like, oh, 
oh, so we're not just born like and we're going to live somewhere forever kind of idea. Like, and this all assumes, by the way, audience, if you're listening, and, and I'm sure Preston would agree, this all assumes if, if if you embrace the Bible as authoritative and as having you know something right. to say about all these claims, right? And in in this right, conversation, right, right. that's what we're assuming here. So you know, if, right. if 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 the garden narrative in some way is trying to point to a greater reality that humans weren't meant to live for or weren't designed to live forever, but the gift of God, right? The the gift of the Creator is that we have the option to do that, and for us to say no to that means the 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 natural consequence, which is just mm-hmm. to die and not really come back. Right. That right. that makes a lot of sense in in this in the grand scheme of annihilation theology, I yeah. guess. And just a little footnote too. I mean, even if Genesis one to three or one to eleven is a myth, it still um, can communicate. It still does communicate theological truth because I, I know there's a lot of you know d- debates and differences on the literalness of Genesis one to eleven in particular. And and I'm you know I'm I'm not an expert in. in that discussion, but either way, even if it's a parable, parables teach theology. Apparently, the good Samaritan teaches theology. So, whether or not sure. there's a literal Adam and Eve, literal tree, literal this, literal that, literal that, it, there's still a theological point being communicated there. So let's let's um, change slight gears and maybe go one, one more gear over here because I think yeah. you've kind of done a really good job outlining the, these perspectives and just kind of giving your own thoughts and kind of where you've been. And I think it's really great. You know, my question is. Why does this matter? And let me let me let me explain why I say that. Because I feel like the way I grew up, you know, I was homeschooled, grew up in fundamentalist Christianity. This is all that everyone cared about, right? Where are you going to spend eternity? Um, like yeah. that, and, and I, I think, and I'm not knocking him because I, I actually have enjoyed many of Francis's books. So I think about, about Francis's rope analogy, right? The famous one, like here's you <laughs> and here's all of eternity, right? And it's like you know that that image is seared in my head because I understand. Okay, I, I definitely get that 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 this life is but a vapor. However, um, I think a lot of people are realizing, like, well. Maybe some Christians in the waters I'm swimming have used that as a way to not engage in 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 fighting for the good of humanity here and now. I mean, we can trace yeah. back some of those as well. So, so to you, why does this talk about the afterlife when, in reality, right, we're doing our best guesswork? You know, we hold the Bible authoritative. Many others don't. Um, you know, um, and we don't yeah. all we. No one really scientifically knows on the other side of death what happens. You know, why why this why does this conversation matter to you? Man, that's a great question. Um, hmm. I would say originally it was, and yeah, this as often happens in my journey, there Mm. is a, an aspect of the Christian worldview, the Christian faith that becomes a topic in our cultural moment that people are talking about. And that's usually the trigger for me. If I'm also interested in that, I'm like, huh, what does the Bible actually say about this? You know, and, and that's really what, you know, I was when Rob Bell wrote his book, um, interesting about it, read it and said, man, I, there's a lot of stuff here that I, I really like stuff. I haven't thought about questions that threw me, a, threw me a curveball and other things. I'm like, I don't know if that's true. And let me think through that a little more. And, um, so it stirred my thinking and then everybody was talking about it. Right. And, Francis, everybody's asking him about it. They, he, him and Rob running in similar circles. And right. so that's why we ended up exploring the topic through writing the book. Um, and uh, so that was my original thing. It was just, it was something that was in the air that a lot of people were talking about. Right. I, um, I don't know. I've, I've held intention this fear. Oh yeah. So I, 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 yeah, I grew up with a, a fear of hell. My word. Mm. Oh, 
<laughs> I remember like, you know, probably like you were growing up in a rapture household, you know, and yeah. as a kid, you know, in the kitchen, Hey mom, what's for dinner? Mom, <laughs> mom, mom, <laughs> mom. <laughs> she exactly. went and I'm here. I'm going to hell. Just like that, that, that for sure. fear. I remember staring into fireplaces thinking is God, gosh, if I just touch my hand near the fire, it hurts like hell. <laughs> And people are going to be just on the flames. Like how long can I just got this sick to my stomach feeling. And and it wasn't like I could never believe in a God who would, I'm like, man, I'm scared of the, I'm so scared. And Mm. um, if I did something really bad, you know, I'd be like, just so, so scared, you know? So yeah, I mean, hell has played a significant place of fear in my um really early. This is like pre, you know, in my just kind of early elementary school, junior high days, whatever, when I wasn't really that serious about my faith. Um, so I, I would say now I have, I, I you know, I, I have met a growing number of Christians and certainly many non-Christians who an ECT view of hell is a major stumbling block in their faith, major stumbling block. And again, I'll say it one more time, then I'll I'll leave it alone. You know, if this is what God has revealed about Himself, then you got to deal with it. If, if you say, "Well, I can never love a God who would do that," I'm like, then don't love this God. Go love another God. I don't know. Like, mm. do what you want. But mm. um, if it's true, it's true, and we got to deal with it. But if it's not true, or at least if it's not the most the best way to interpret Scripture, or even the only way then we might have put an unnecessary artificial stumbling block for millions of Christians and certainly many more millions of non-Christians who this is the one of the main hindrances to even considering considering Jesus. Yeah. You know, I, I'm kind of processing this in real time with you, to be frank. And I would like maybe more of your thoughts on this idea of, yeah. you, know, you kind of said, um, Hey, if this is how God reveals himself in scripture, I'm I'm going to believe it. ECT is the way, you know, kind of thing. Do you think maybe not valid isn't the right word, but can you at least understand, I'm sure you could, um how someone might say, well, if that is like the God of the Bible, I don't know how that would be necessarily even a good God because I, he, uh, let me explain my logic for yeah, this yeah, you know, and then let yeah, you, yeah. And then let you kind of question. get your thoughts. Sure. You know, if we are made in the image of God, I have to imagine that 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 some sense of a moral compass is, is impressed on mm-hmm. us because it comes from the creator. You know, if, if the thought of even for me, Hitler being tortured for 2 billion years at some yeah. point becomes just, all right, this is just like, you know, evil. You know I mean? How many, how many, how many years can this guy roast right before it's just, it's just, it's just, vile. Uh, if, if I could imagine that, then like this God figure that I'm, I'm supposed to be made in their image of, I would think it would be that big of a problem for me. But instead it's like, wait, like, like you said, the, the girl who's 15 who grew up in Yemen, like just happened to be born to the wrong family. Doesn't, yeah. in, in, I'm going to put this in very blunt evangelical terms, but you know, doesn't pray the prayer and repent and, and gets up to heaven and God goes, sorry, wrong God yeah. pulls the lever and that they burn forever. Yeah. You know, if that is the reality yeah. of at least, at least what the Bible would teach, right? I mean, I, I, not to sound, I'm, I'm kind of, I feel even guilty saying it this way, but to quote Rob Bell, like, I could never, like, at this point, believe in a God like that, even if it was real. I'd rather just live ignorantly and go, well, I'm screwed no matter what kind of thing, you know? Yeah. What do you think about that? So, Tim, I mean, I think I, I'm going to echo your thoughts. This has been an ongoing internal dialogue that I constantly have with myself. Hmm. And now I'm having it with, with my kids because they're coming at me saying, right. okay, I get 
the some Canaanites were really bad. The women and children, like <laughs> right, what, right, the flood, like really, like they couldn't save a couple more babies. The boat not big. They saved all these animals. They couldn't pull another people up on board. Mm. You know, like mm. so here, so here's how I and I'm gonna think out loud with you. And I don't, I don't have. I don't even know if my answer is compelling or not. I don't have an answer, but just the yeah. way I think through it, I said, look, I have to be comfortable with things in the Christian worldview that I don't naturally resonate with. And if I was going to write the story, if I was going to be honest, I probably wouldn't write it that way. Um, but what are my other options? Either hmm. I kind of become the ultimate authority on what is good and beautiful Mm. And is that for just me or is that for every, do, do I make up the rules for everybody? Is my right. morality and my view of what's beautiful? Should I start a cult and say, okay, this is, you know, or is it, is it subjective to where you might see something as good and beautiful? I might disagree. And that just feels, is it, can you even, is that, is that a good route to go? That, that doesn't seem right. Then my other options are, okay, and maybe I need to find another story. Maybe maybe Judaism or maybe Islam or maybe um, Christian Scientology. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not go that far, okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe Buddhism or whatever. So, yeah, right, you know, right. Or, or atheism, maybe. I feel like if I was an atheist, I really feel like I would be pretty nihilistic. And even then, hmm. atheism doesn't have... Uh, beautiful response to the same questions you know um right right evil in the world there's hurricanes there's people born into families that get in a car accident or mangled there's you know there's unfairness all over the place well i was happily born in a family where i wasn't abused many other kids were abused right. and I, that's too so so i have to ask a question what is the most not the perfect story mm. but the most coherent the most beautiful story with questions is but I'm, I'm okay saying canaanites I, yeah i i have questions about that uh, i i don't i i'm i'm not terribly happy with that um yeah so yeah that's so i do wrestle and i, I want to affirm what you said though about like we do bear god's image we do have a moral compass and even beyond that our emotions as i said earlier are informed by <sighs> how we see Jesus too. A lot of our reservation with ECT isn't simply because we're creating God's image. It's, it's that. And it's, we look at the gospels and see Jesus and we're like, my view of Jesus is causing my emotions to be a little bit like, Oh, this doesn't feel right. Like the Christ I read about. So, and that, right. that's where I, I used to say, well, I don't want to be emotional about it. I don't, you know, it's like, well, I, it's a little more, complicated than that so yes yes yeah. it's more, and frankly i mean whenever i even say that like a second ago you know like i couldn't believe in a god like that i think what comes to my mind is how i grew up which is well who are you oh man right like they, they it's romans 9 right yeah. it's like well god's ways aren't our ways and and i want to i want to acknowledge that yes we are trying to um to to put language onto this infinite idea of God, you know, I mean, I think it's, yeah. I forgot who it was, but it was someone I read that, you know, said, if I fully understood God, I'd be God. So certainly there is that level of mystery to this, yeah. right? And we, we, and we have to be okay with that. But at the same time, like, like you said, if we read Jesus and then we go, okay, 
Uh, like, like if, I, if, I, if I was on a desert island, I read Jesus, and then someone says, yeah, and also if you don't believe in that Jesus, that same Jesus <laughs> whose God will punish you forever in hell. It's like, whoa, yeah. I'm sorry, wait, I'm sorry, what just happened? Um, yeah. So I, one other question I had before we kind of get ready to wrap up, and I appreciate you even giving me this time. It's been so helpful. Sure, yeah. You yeah. know, and this is, again, maybe even a little, maybe, maybe like one more step removed, but it's still linked to this. How much do you think of how we read the Bible um, is a class of our, is is a clash of cultures, and here's what I mean by that, right? You know, we read like Noah's Ark, for example, right? Oh my God, mm-hmm. like he, God drowned the entire world. But I've also heard like really legitimate, you know, biblical scholars and theologians say, well, like there's more happening behind this. Like it, it might not be. Don't maybe don't think about it as like this literal. Actually, the entire planet, every human died. But think about it more of like the author kind of pointing to an act of decreation, you know, tied to chaos and order. And like mm. those things, whenever I hear that kind of stuff, I'm like, mm. okay, I'm not saying it's the most palatable, but it, it, it yeah. gives me more understanding of how someone in that cultural moment was thinking that maybe I just don't have a category for until I understand what's happening. How much of this do you think is is a clash of cultures? Yeah. Because, you know, like for instance, John Walton, right, the theologian, mm-hmm. the Bible yeah. was written for us, but not to us. I mean, a classic yes. line that really has helped me be, okay, yeah. when I'm reading the 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 story of Noah's Ark, I am a, a 21st century Western post-enlightened, you know, um, whole yeah. way of viewing myself in my, in my relationship to the world. Then, then, and that is not who this author is, right? And so I found that like different theologians help have helped me not perfectly, but definitely reconcile parts of the text where I'm like, okay, yeah. maybe this isn't is still very palatable, but it's not as bad as yes, God in an act of mercy killed every single human on earth besides you know a family with a bunch of animals inside of of, of, yeah. of a boat. What are your thoughts on that kind of idea of like, do you think a lot of this is is a, is a clash of cultures, or is it more like, listen, the Bible's clear, you know, like God drowned the whole world, like physically, it just happened, and so just deal yeah. with it. Like, how do you kind of see that? It's a great question. Let me try to be concise, and this is going to be not. <laughs> <laughs> the most educated response. Um, fair, fair. You, well, you you mentioned before. You know, it, could the could the flood be teaching us about? Uh, Would you like? Um, oh, I said it's more about deconstruction, an act of, reconstruction. It's or an act like of that, decreation. Or, it's an act of decreation yeah. where where the blessing. Tim Mackey puts it like the blessing of God's hand of life is removed, and then the yeah. chaos of the waters comes back in. Kind of like a retelling of the creation account in a very different way. Right. I would say clearly it is that. Um, mm. that, that, that theme seems very clear and Genesis one to 11, whether you take it as a myth or more literal, there are some really intricate, coherent, artistic, beautifully written themes there that are very intentional. This is not just, and this happened and that happened and this happened and that there's so much theology going on there. Mm. So clearly it is that the question is, could it also not, could it, could it also be, um, God destroyed the whole world through a flood, you know? Um, right. Uh, in, in that, you know, I, I, I would default to the view I, I grew up with that it seems like that's, it's both. And, you know, mm. um, my main question with these, these texts and any text really is I, I still am an authorial intention kind of guy. What did this sure. ancient <laughs> writer with an ancient cosmology and a really different view of so many things. And I, have today what did that ancient writer intend to say did the author of genesis intend to communicate these themes while describing a literal flood i would that's mm. would be my default um mm. and you have you know flood stories 
th- this is what's interesting. We do have obviously, you know, flood stories in, in many different ancient traditions, which would make most sense if there was an actual historical event that spawned these different myths and traditions that are eerily similar. You read Gilgamesh and you read Genesis, you're like, golly, they got same birds and boat and <laughs> similar themes and everything. So it would make more sense that there was some kind of literally event here. Um, was it worldwide, local? You know, I, those right. are minor right. questions that I, to me, aren't that significant. But um, and, and, yeah, no, no offense to my answers in Genesis, friends, but I, I don't find them, you know, hills to die off, or whatever. But um, you can totally so, offend uh, Ken Ham on this podcast. I'm totally fine with this. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'm not, no comment about that. But I, uh, to answer your question, yeah, absolutely, there's a different a, a distance. Um, between ancient texts, ancient intentions, and our modern day mind. And that's, we can't get around that. We can only be aware of it and interpret the Bible with more humility, I would, I would say. Um, this is, I mean, this is the main reason why I did a PhD and, and my main, my PhD was largely in first century Jewish literature. I read more Jewish literature than Bible during my four years mm. of the PhD because I wanted to know, I wanted to know firsthand what was the world and worldview and mindset of ancient writers, you know? Um, and yeah, it just, it, it caused me to be a lot more humble, I think, in interpreting the Bible. Cause I'm like, man, we're, de- we are dealing with, I think that this tension, a, a text that is both clear ish in yeah. many ways, um, yeah. but also complicated too, you know? And, and that's, yeah, again, going back to my word, I mean, I think that that's why we do need to have, um, interpretive humility, you know, um, knowing that we are dealing with texts that aren't written in our culture, written in different languages that we will never actually know, like as a spoken kind of <laughs> language that they had. So yeah, well, I, do, I, do you have a, yeah, I'd love, I'm just kind of talking around your question, but um, well, I, I love that because again, think about the people we're talking to, right? A lot of people who listen to this podcast are people who are committed to Jesus, but are like, okay, I've been taught that that the Bible is God said it, that's that settles it kind of thing. But I'm realizing the more I listen to people, yeah. right? They're probably thinking like yourselves and others, it's just it's more complicated than that. Yeah. And, there, and there's more factors than yeah. than oh, the English version I'm reading is exactly how the scribe who scribed right. Paul's letters wrote it, right? I mean, yeah. there's just more happening there. And I think what that means for me is you know, I've I've had to completely renegotiate my relationship to the Bible because, mm-hmm. um, and I, I, I quote Tim Mackey in the Bible Project a lot because I just love their content. But they they say often how like, you know, what categories am I putting on the Bible that the, that the mm-hmm. Bible isn't even trying to put on itself, <laughs> right? right, right. Um, and I'm, I'll I'll take the shot at Ken Ham. You know, they're like, well, listen, Genesis one is clearly a six day creation narrative of 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 the of the literal. This is how yeah. the Earth was born. It's like, well, like, did, did the author of Genesis one even know like what gravity was? I mean, as far as I'm aware, there's no Hebrew word for the word brain. They had no clue about just like intricate wording <laughs> of stuff yeah. like this, right? A whole different. Well, they, they I'm, I, I should back up. I, but I, I don't mean to make them sound uh, not intelligent because the reality is these books are brilliantly crafted and they are absolutely yeah. brilliant in, in in what they're trying to do. But their yeah. mindset is just very different than how sure, we absolutely. as Westerners think about things. That, that's a better way of putting it. And and so I say all that because 
I I probably would say I love the Bible more than ever, but I also, like you said, have much more humility than ever yeah. when I'm approaching the text and I'm thinking, okay, I'm reading it, but I'm probably missing like some of the hyperlinks that, that are being connected here to yeah. other parts of the scripture. Yeah. And so I should be aware of that before I just assume, oh, this verse was written to me because I prayed to God and read this verse randomly, right. you know, that kind of idea. Here, here's the way I'd put it. Taking the Bible authoritatively does not mean taking it literally. Ooh, Most of the on. Bible is not intended to be taken literally. When I say authorial intention, yeah. I mean, if the author of Genesis 1 to 11 was intending to write a myth, then taking the Bible authoritatively is to take it as a myth. In fact, you would be disobeying the Bible and not following biblical authority if you took it literally, if the author's not intending it literally. I, I ran into this huh. when I... I was teaching on the book of Job early on in my um, I think my first year in in, in uh, teaching at Cedarville University. Yeah, and you know, so I'm teaching Old Testament survey, coming you know, teach you know, going book by book, and you know, there's books I've hardly even read. You know, maybe read them once or twice, and so now I'm like reading, reading, studying. And I'm like, man, I, after looking at the book of Job, I'm like, I don't think this is to be taken literally. Mm. Like, ninety percent of Job is written in poetry. You, you try to tell me his three friends in perfect stanzas were waltzing around saying roses are red violets are blue <laughs> satan sucks and who are you you know like right, it's yeah. just it's obviously uh, intended hmm. to if, if somebody is writing in poetry not prose it's probably not intended to be taken literally then you have you know the number seven and ten which are clearly in the hebrew mindset often at least symbolic of something you've got the devil waltzing around chit-chatting with god in the in heaven is that really like there's so much there's just things in this right. story that I, I think there was probably a historical person named Job that was a wealthy man fell in hard times. Okay. And and maybe that was a historical kernel, but the book as it's written, there's there's signs in the actual way it's written that signal that this book was probably not intended by the authoritative biblical author, <laughs> inspired by God, to be right. taken. Literally, I, I'm I'm a little undecided on Jonah. Okay, I haven't done, mm. I, I, you know, but if Jonah is a par, if the author of Jonah intended it to be a parable, because there's parabolic things in there, right? I, right. I mean, do I, <laughs> right? Cows repenting and and you know the whole city of Assyria <laughs> repenting when we have zero historical evidence that the nation of Assyria was Jewish for a generation or, you know, like, ah, um, right, right, we have right. the size of the city. Well, you know, we have, uh, you know, the, 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 the great fish spitting Jonah up and then waltzes into Assyria landlocked kind of, you know, there's, well, you're swam along the river, you know, I, it's just, um, huh. and then being in the belly of a fish, you know, and, and I'm fine with like, God doing miracle. I, I don't need things to be explained naturally. I'm fine with God doing the miracle. I'm asking the question though, did the author intend to convey miracles here or did he intend to create a more parabolic story to communicate authoritative theological truth? Because parables and myth can contain powerful moral and theological teaching. Yes. And I think an example of something that maybe a, a, an author wanted to communicate as a miracle would be, would be the resurrection, right? I mean, that, that yeah, that's low-hanging yeah. fruit. Yeah. Like, like Paul affirms a resurrection bodily and all of the gospel accounts, you know, they affirm this bodily resurrection. Now, whether you believe that happened or not is besides the point. The author is intending to communicate that. Exactly. That is the point, you know, as opposed yes. to, like you said, with Jonah, maybe the author is like, yeah, let me take maybe this historical figure and 
and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand that that the way uh, maybe a Hebrew mind tells history or tells their own story is not what we would call maybe always the camcorder footage. Like they have no problem embellishing yeah. or like or or, or, or using things oh, sure. to try and draw to a larger point. Like even the Gospels, yeah. right? They're really four yeah. different perspectives, and they kind of point. Yeah paint Jesus as, as like a different, slightly different in each one intentionally. Right. It's not a yeah. mistake. It's not that they were lying, but they have an yeah. agenda. And so, like you said, yeah. it's to be faithful to the Bible is to do our best to understand those agendas, to understand what's really right. happening. Instead of putting on our own lens as well, as Westerners, it had to be this. Oh, yeah. this, the, you know, Judas hangs himself here. Judas has got spilled out here. They have to be reconciled, you know, yeah, because we're yeah. Westerners and things have to make complete sense as opposed to like, well, what is the author trying to communicate when he says that, yeah. that, that A versus B? Is that kind of the idea here? Absolutely. I, and then this is why it was so refreshing studying in the UK is like British ah. evangelicalism it, it is quite different, um, mm. very gospel centered. They love Jesus, but their view of scripture. I mean, everything I said, you know, maintaining the authority of everything is authority of scripture, but they don't get a lot. Like you don't see a lot of like harmonization of the gospels in by UK British scholars as much. That's kind of an American Western modern thing to do. They say, no, what was Matthew's intention? What was Mark's intention? How did, how did Matthew look at Mark and say, well, I want to draw out this event because according to ancient standards of biography, that was part of what you do. Mm. You summarize speeches, you to to build a theme, and, and that was just what you do. Ancient historiography. So I take, you know, I take Joshua and Judges to be literal. First Kings, Second Kings, like it is historiography. It's not, it's it's a different genre than Genesis 1 to 11. Mm. Um, but according to ancient historiography, it was part of what you do to use hyperbole. So when the Chronicles or Kings says, you know, uh, Zera from Ethiopia marched with a million men, there, there wasn't a million men. <laughs> he had a big right. army, okay? Right, it was right. part of the natural way in which people wrote about it, especially military historiography. This is something I, I did some work in when I was writing my book, Fight. Um, and uh, I, I, you know, I looked at Joshua and I realized that Man, Joshua is kind of like a lot of other ancient texts that describe battles and warfare and everything. Huh. And it was very common, expected, that if you describe a battle, you would kind of use hyperbole. They annihilated the whole city and a mm. billion people got destroyed. <laughs> you know, like these sweeping kind of numbers. And, and if you, going back to your original point, like, yeah, if we as Westerners who are more concerned with numerical precision and stuff and- right accuracy like that uh, and we judge the ancient author by those standards and we're, then that's our problem like that's not right that's where we need to say let's get inside the mindset of the ancient author and read the text as the original author intended it to be read yeah, I mean, you know, we use hyperbole all the time in our culture. I mean, I, I, I on YouTube, I see you often. You just used it right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you're right. But I was going to say, on top of that, uh, I see it often with, you know, like the the classic, like, Ben Shapiro YouTube videos. Ben Shapiro destroys, destroys. liberal. You know, it's like, it's like it's the same idea, right? I mean, like, like we use this language all the time. But again, we're th this is the water that we're swimming in, so we don't really see the water around us, right? right? And, so, and so it's not like... No one thinks that 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 uh, that YouTube video is lying, right? Because right. they're not trying to communicate a literal like truth. Like, oh yeah, Ben Ben Shapiro killed this person. It's just the point that ideologically he won the argument, right? And so yeah. it's the same. Is that kind of the same idea that you're pointing to here with like you yeah. know how we read some of these yeah. other books? Yeah, absolutely. And, and Jesus uses hyperbole 
quite often, you know? And, and yeah, so again, I, again I, I can't emphasize it enough because this, for people that unfortunately, oh man, for people that unfortunately deconstruct from Christianity, I would say nine out of 10 cases, they were raised in an environment where a hyper literal, not just a hyper, just a literal view of scripture was equated with believing in the Bible, believing in Jesus. So, uh, is my internet doing okay? It's good now. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, I, I, I talk to people quite often, you know, that, that if you didn't believe in a literal six day creation, young earth, that was orthodox is Christianity. If you yes. can't buy that, then you're not a Christian is, is, is what was in the air. So many people were raised with right that here. or looking at one. <laughs> Really? Yeah, it's so. Totally. And then they, get the, then totally. they take. Then they go to college. We send them to college, and this professor, who's not like the guy in God is not dead. He's actually kind and humble, but smart, and and you know is generous, and and you know loves the poor, or whatever, and is living out these kind of Christian virtues. But says, oh, by the way, yeah, there's um, the earth is not flat. It's <laughs> also not six thousand or ten thousand years old. Is you know, and then they'll present all the scientific evidence, and it's like, okay, I have a choice bury my head in the sand and just cling to my faith or ditch my faith when I think both you and I are like, there's a wide world of really interesting, yeah. compelling uh, Christianity between these two <laughs> options of atheism and hyper-modern conservatism. And I think what, and we'll start landing the plane here, I think what concerns me, the reason why I even started the New Evangelicals is because that ideology is still pretty rampant. Like you quoted, God's yeah. not dead. I mean, there's a reason why they make the movie that way, right? Because they yeah. want that perception of the liberal atheists out there just want to destroy Christianity and, you know, and yeah. take over the nation and secularize <laughs> it and and let the gays have their way, you know? But but I'm, I'm serious. I wish I wasn't, right? But like, yeah. but like, and, and a lot of people grew up in those circles, like myself. I grew up being taught the same thing. If you don't believe in a little six day creation, you're probably not a Christian. Um, you know, right. I grew up with all those things. And and like you said, as I started realizing, okay, I've been taught that this is all there is to Christian thinking. When in reality, I'm I, it's one sliver, one very small, yeah. really, especially historically, sliver of Christian thinking that is not even held up by most others outside of my bubble as right. even legitimate. You know, in right, a lot of ways, right, you know. Right, right, so yeah. it does concern me just to see like that that we're still having these conversations, you know, and and it's just frustrating to see that 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 between the politi the politicization of our culture along yeah. with our own history as evangelicals and. All that other stuff, like it's still happening. It's still happening, yeah. and, and we're just yeah, trying to totally. give people better options and better ways forward without feeling yeah. feeling like you know either you bury your hand or your head in the sand, or you're 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 a militant atheist like Sam Harris or something. Yeah. You know, it's like yeah. there are, there's more ways to discuss this and to, and to talk about it. Absolutely, man. Yeah, it, it yeah, and we're about to lose an entire younger generation because we become more polarized and this binary of. Atheism or conservative Christianity, those are your options. Right. I feel like are getting stronger. Or or even within the church, like when people, you know, I don't know, like they they, you know, there's this, this is the right view of Christianity. If you fall outside that, maybe you're a liberal Christian or progressive or deacon, whatever word they want to use. And I'm like, gosh, like that's just there is, I meet a lot of people that are very compelled by Jesus. Um, they have questions about the Bible, they're not quite sure where they're at. They're thinking about sexuality. I, I don't know what I believe about marriage and sexuality. I got a lot of gay friends and I right. need to think through this. And if we don't give people space 
to think through this uh, without trying to just stuff belief down their throats. We're just going to keep pushing it away. I mean, I would say overly conservative and militant Christianity is the main thing driving people to deconstruction. And let me be clear too, for my, do you have any conservatives on the list? For my conservative, I am not even saying that young earth theology can't be a legitimate Christian option. I, I'm I, right. I'm glad that view is on the table as a Christian option. It's when they equate that with the Christian view and look down theological noses, everybody else who doesn't hold that, yes. which is just odd for so many reasons. Um, right. Right. That's when it becomes a problem. I've, I've got conservative friends that hold very conservative views and they're humble. They're gracious. They're super smart. They get along with others. I, I would not want, I would, I, I, I want that category in the repertoire of kind of Christian approaches. That's right. Um, I mean, yeah. we're, what, what we advocate for as new evangelicals is not to become fundamentalists all over again, which is very tempting right. to do, <laughs> you know, but we're <laughs> simply saying like, can you just make some space here? I mean, even in my own journey from going from non-affirming to affirming uh, mm. the queer community, you know, it was like, I was in this middle point for a while where I'm like, listen, yeah. even if I, if I, if I don't, if I, if I don't know how to see these texts, can we make room for the people who are queer, right. who are like, I'm a committed Jesus follower and also married to my husband. Like, can we make room? Right. for them, even if you don't fully agree with the theological implications of that, you know? And, yeah. and for, for a lot of people, including at the time my own church, like it was just, it's not reconcilable. It is a gospel issue, which mm. ironically the Nicene Creed says nothing about sexuality, but I digress, <laughs> you know? But like, you know, I'm just saying, you know, it, it seems like what you said is very accurate, where a lot of people who are quote unquote deconstructing, or what I say is, you know, we're disentangling our faith, we're having a, a crisis of, of theology, not of faith, things like that, is because of we grew up in a bubble that said, not only can 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 you not be anything else but this version of Christian, you can ask questions as long as you land back here. Once you land right. somewhere else, you're gone, you know? And so, anyway, that's for a whole different, another hour-long discussion on, on what that looks like. There's a phrase but. that I've, I've uh, well, it's a famous phrase in, in, in church history, um, reformed and always reforming. Yeah, um, yeah. Where we are part of, and reformed, and not, not in the Calvinistic sense necessarily, but in the kind of Protestant tradition, sure. we are, you know, um, reformed, meaning we are concerned about the authority of scripture and always reforming, meaning we're constantly bringing our theological conclusions back to the text to see if these things are so. Um, call it deconstruction, call it whatever. I mean, that's, right. I think that can be a healthy thing if it's done yeah. Done well with humility. Well, listen, I gotta go. I, I got another podcast. Yeah, I was We're gonna talk about sex and robots here. So, uh, oh, that sounds like fun. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I'm gonna. I'll, yeah, we're gonna end here. You know, I really appreciate you making time, Preston. Where can people? Where can people find you? I know you have a podcast. Plug that real quick for us. Uh, yeah, theology in the raw. Uh, where podcasts are sold. Um, uh, my website, PrestonSprinkle.com. Also, my ministry website is CenterForFaith.com, um, where there's lots of material there as well. So, great. Um, social media. I mean, just I have a unique name. So, if you just Google it, you'll find out where I'm at. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, thanks for making time, Preston. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks, man. Thanks. Yeah.
With classes in crisis communication, influence, and data presentation, Gonzaga University's online Master's in Communication and Leadership equips you with the tools you need to communicate clearly and encourage creativity in any industry. Concentrations in digital media, strategic communication, and global leadership allow you to customize your degree. Visit gonzaga.edu slash communication and learn why a master's degree from Gonzaga can help you take your career to the next level. That's gonzaga.edu slash communication. That's the sound of me prepping the grill with Reynolds Wrap. And the sound of me not doing dishes. And the sound of me spending more time outside with my family. Easy prep, cook, and clean. Make time with Reynolds Wrap. I like the sound of that.